Hi guys, we just wanted to come on before the show and say that this episode deals with murder and with violence, and the content may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's, if it's uh, a killing or whatever. You just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women that served time behind these walls. My name is Anthony, and I'm in the studio with Sky. Hello, hello. Also known as Star. Yep, I had a coworker call me that an hour ago. Yes. Which has been almost a week since the first time. <laughs> but she had an excuse because you were wearing stars that day, but you are not not wearing stars today no uh, so I'm i don't not. i don't know why i mean that's my name now it's fine yeah i think you should go by that alias uh, yeah but uh a star i just i don't know it's a lovely name but it's not it doesn't fit me <laughs> sky fits me yeah yeah anyway i uh my my alias was bubba and uh then uh. it turned into uncle bug my nieces would call me Cute. they couldn't say bub bubba oh. so they call me bugga <laughs> And then I turn into Uncle Bug. And so, and then my Uncle friends call me Grandpa Tony sure, P. Yeah, that one I don't get. I mean, I kind of do, but the Grandpa I don't get. Oh. <laughs> that's just probably an inside. Well, I think just because, like, I don't, I'm, I'm not very hip. And oh, I just kind of do my own sure. thing. Like, I'll, I love klezmer music. And, like, sure. who does that? Yeah, Only a true. grandpa would yeah, like that yeah. sort of thing. So, well, here's something we have in common. My nickname in my family is Skybug. Skybug? Mm-hmm. Oh, so mm-hmm. Uncle Bug I don't and know Skybug. Why. Yeah, right. I don't know why, but it, they still, one of my uncles, like, still to this day calls me that. He just well, walks in and says, hey, Bug. Yeah. So, anyway. All right. We're, On not, the topic, we're not here to talk about nicknames. I think this is a good segue. because Exactly. Both of our characters today came in under so many aliases. Oh, boy. So I will be discussing a, a guy who's, I believe his true name was Alfred E. Love. He's number 1141. Mm-hmm. Um, he also is known as Portland Whitey. That's what, like my favorite yep, nickname. That is a good one. His next nickname is Skidmore, which I also love. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fred Love, which is short for Alfred Love. Okay. P.C. White, E.J. Mack, H.E. Miller, Harry McIrvin, E.J. Thomas, Harry McCorvin, L. Whitney, James Thomas, and John C. Page. These are all names that he came in under, uh, and he served all kinds of different lives in prison. So 12 aliases, is that correct? I all, think so. And I, these are just the ones that I found. Just I know on that, like his FBI record. Well, or are these all the names he yeah. came under? Oh, I guess this is he came, early. So he served in Walla Walla, in Salem, in, in Oregon, uh-huh. 
and Nebraska and Minnesota and in Idaho. And those are the ones that we know about. So did he come into Idaho with more than one of these names? Uh, yeah, he, oh, okay. he served twice, one under um, P.C. White and Alfred Love. And okay. we'll kind of get to that. Gotcha. He's most known as Portland Whitey. But I'll Such call him Alfred name. just yeah. to like keep us in the yeah, yeah. in the same place. So Portland Whitey, that's a good name. Portland Whitey. <laughs> uh, so he's born in Iowa in 1868, and I found this in Ancestry.com. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the third youngest of four children. Uh, his father is a farmer, mm-hmm. and by 1880, his younger brother passes away. And the family moves to Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And that is where his dad works as a blacksmith. Mm-hmm. Uh, his oldest brother is a cigar maker. And his second oldest brother, and they're teenagers, works as an upholsterer. And he does not have a listed job in the 1880 census. So as early as November of 1886, we see their very first crime. And this is right, Alfred's about 18. And he is never charged with this crime. But this was a wormhole. And... Everything about this man's life was just one rabbit hole, wormhole after the yeah. other. And I have 46 pages of research, that, <laughs> so I apologize. I'm going to try and condense all of this. Yeah, that is a lot. Uh, Sky has to wait for me to finish my preparations for all these episodes. <laughs> no. She's always ready, and I'm like, one more hour, and then we'll record. And she's just like, are you ready yet? So I apologize. It, that means his research is so thorough. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> This is a hard one, yeah, and yeah, yeah. you have an equally yes, hard one. Yes. So. All right, so November 1886, Alfred meets a man, Bulldog Kelly, and he also known as King of Spades, and he is an outlaw. The names, I yes. love them all. Yeah, and Bulldog Kelly hears about a man named Thomas Keneally, who is working for the Cascade branch of the Northern Pacific. And he rolls in from from Tacoma, Washington, into Portland, Oregon, holding $3,000 in his belt. And word gets out. Mm -hmm. And this uh, bulldog, Kelly, got his eye on him. Uh So he starts following him around. Uh Well, the first thing that Thomas Keneally does, he checks into a hotel, and then he decides to relieve himself by going to a red light house okay, okay. yes all right and uh he meets with this woman and they go upstairs and mm-hmm. and he orders some drinks and the bartender comes up the stairs the bartender's this big big guy and uh this this guy thomas Keneally, realizes that like oh i'm feeling a little unsafe because mm-hmm. this bad looking man this this bartender seems to have some some other ideas for him well he doesn't realize that bulldog kelly has this bartender now kind of under his oh, ruse, okay. along with Alfred and uh, a couple other fellas. And they uh, they come up with this plan to drug Thomas Keneally and then steal his money. Oh, so they start putting things in his drink, and Thomas passes out. Oh, no. And while they're trying to they steal his money, Thomas starts to stir. Mm-hmm. And this bartender, who's this huge oh, no. guy, wraps his hands around this, this guy's throat. Oh, no. And uh, he's thrashing around trying to stop him from stealing his money. The woman in the room actually pulls out a knife, plunges it into him several times. Into Thomas? Into Thomas. What? She she kills him. Oh, my gosh. Alfred and a buddy of his, uh, they're tasked with carrying the body, now a lifeless body that's just mutilated, to a nearby old hotel that has not been used in, in, in a long time. So it's in... You know, terrible working order. They 
walk him down the street and act like he's drunk. They've got his arms around their shoulders, and you know, there's blood and everything else, but it's dark, so nobody notices. So they, they drop him into this basement room, and the next day, the police discover him, and they said that it looked like he had been cut to pieces. Oh, boy. Yeah. They split the money five ways. So they each made about $600, which, you know, back in 1886, uh-huh. this is $17,000. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So they made oh, a lot of money yeah. off of killing this individual. And the uh, the house was actually demolished, and Hotel Portland was built in its place in 1888, uh, just a couple years after they discovered this body. And that's finally demolished in 1951 and turned into the Pioneer Courthouse Square, which you can still still visit. Mm -hmm. So any Portland listeners, go check that area out. There was a body that was discovered there. It's not until 1896, 10 years later, that they find out who killed this man. And that's all because John Cosgrove, who helped Alfred carry the body uh-huh. down there, there were some questions uh, because he had attempted to strangle a sex worker. And a detective was sent in to find out who it was, this guy named A.J. Cody. And so A.J. goes undercover, and he befriends um, Cosgrove and says that, you know, I'm down and out. I need, I need a place to stay. And Cosgrove was like, yeah, hey, I've, I've been there. Why don't you stay with me? And actually lets this detective sleep in his bed. And while they're laying in bed, Cosgrove keeps having these nightmares and waking up and, and shouting, uh, oh, my God, drive the side away from me. And well, so this after, is some like Edgar Allan Poe stuff. It is, yeah. So this guy is—he said it. It was so traumatic. So he, the detective's like, "What's wrong? What's wrong?" And and he finally gets it out of him that ten years ago he had been involved in murdering this guy and carrying his body to this hotel. Also, is it weird that uh, these two strange men are sleeping in the same bed together? That feels weird to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess maybe not then. I think. But I think just, that there was like. I mean, he was kind of the known criminal element sort of thing, and I think he just saw this detective as like, oh, he's a down and out or two. And I, I don't think there was much put into it. No, no, no. I don't yeah. mean, I don't mean that way. I just mean oh. like I would never Invite share a my bed with a stranger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ever. Yeah. No, I don't blame you there. Yeah. So, <laughs> so he finally admits all of this, and he says, you know, I witnessed the whole proceeding. I saw the woman plunge the knife up to the hilt into the poor fellow several times, and it made me shudder. They start to investigate and try to track down Bulldog Kelly. They find out that he actually died in a railroad accident in 1893 between Spokane and Missoula, and Alfred Love was serving a prison sentence under some alias in some penitentiary, (laughs) either in Washington or Oregon. And so they they actually did not know who he was. So fast forward, this is his first connection to, to crime that I could uncover. Mm -hmm. I don't know what happens to him. I don't know what he was serving time or where at because Mm. he's under so many aliases that all my digging through the Library of Congress, I have no idea. And you're going to have the same story. But I do know in spring of 1899, he is arrested under the name Philip C. White. And uh, he's given the number 685 for burglary in the second degree. And uh, he and a fellow named Robert Stevens committed a robbery. The prison turnkey was sent up to to pick him up, and uh, from the Lewiston jail where where he was sitting. And as he's arriving, the sheriff is pulling them out of the cells and 
Robert Stevens and Alfred escape. And the prison turnkey actually helps the sheriff chase them down in this like super exciting jailbreak and, <laughs> and capture them. And he's brought down to, to Boise and, and given the number 685. And he spends about a year here. He's released in March 21st, 1900. And then the next few years, he is a rascal breaking into safes and a yeg. That's what they call these uh, safe crackers. And, you know, those are those were like the top of the roost, the, the prison pyramid. You know, oh. they've got uh, safe crackers and then down at the bottom are like people in for sex crimes and oh, things. So, okay. I mean, he was kind so of like, like well-respected. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was a heavy uh, for his ability to crack safes. 1905, he finally gets busted after a whole string of these. And they're happening all over the Northwest. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't quite pinpoint which ones were his. Right. He's in Wallace, Idaho, and uh, he breaks into this building he, that has a post office attached to it. And they, they break in, they steal uh, a bunch of money from this safe, and then they loot the post office. So now he's breaking both state mm -hmm. crime and, and federal. federal. Exactly. Yeah. So apparently right after they, they committed this robbery, he spent the remainder of the day and uh, part of the next day in a Wallace uh, brothel. And uh, so police investigated, and that's actually how they helped pinpoint by questioning them who the man was that, that robbed the... Uh, yeah the building and, and the post office. So a $200 reward is sent out for his arrest. And actually, the Coeur d'Alene chief of police arrests him as he's charged with vagrancy uh, on the electric line depot in May 1905. Okay. Then they find out his identity and go, hey, this is the guy who robbed the place in Wallace. Oh. So they send a, a sheriff from Wallace to come and, and check him out. And, yep, sure enough, that's our guy. So they charge him, burglary in the first degree. Good. And he's given the number 1141. Okay. Yes. He's sentenced to 15 years at the penitentiary. And he's awaiting, after his release, um, some federal charges as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Now, a side story, uh, the chief, McGovern, who actually captured him for the vagrancy charge, was arrested soon after. What? Okay. He was charged with throwing dead dogs into the Spokane <gasps> River. Boxes Boy. of three, four, and up to nine boxes. dogs. Boxes of them were were seen floating down the river. Ugh. And citizens were pulling these boxes out of the river and going, no way, you're kidding me. This is, I mean, this is their drinking water, their Ugh. bathing water. This no. is their fresh water for oh many of those gosh. people. Yeah. And so apparently the kennel up there, they were overflowing with all these extra dogs. And so the chief Gross. asked the dog catcher to take care of the dogs. And the dog catcher did so. He he killed the dogs and then brought the bodies to the uh, the dump, which was 200 yards from the Spokane River. Ugh. Not Well, that's a bad... A great design. Yeah, that's yes. a bad space for a dump. Yeah, so he's charged with a misdemeanor. Um, but... Huh. Uh, yeah. Yikes. So did they catch him in the act or No. So that's just, the that's okay. the thing. It was all kind of hearsay. But oh. because he is a high authority, they were like, you know, we need to make an example. He ought to be for law and order. And, you know, they, they were trying to say, you know, he's the best officer we've ever had in this town. Mm -hmm. But he can't be doing that. Yeah, and, for sure. Oh anyway, side sure. story, side story. <laughs> so back to Alfred. He arrives, he's given his Bertillion, he says his occupation is a laborer, he's five feet, eight and a quarter inches tall, he's got a light complexion, 146 pounds, he's got light, sparse hair, 
blue eyes, several scars, including a half circle on his forehead over his right eye, and two small scars above his right eyelid. Mm-hmm. He grew up Methodist, and he had five years of education, so he could read and write. Mm-hmm. He also said he chewed and smoked. Okay. Um, Tattoos included uh, a tattoo of a cross with a sort of floral decoration underneath and vertical lines over the top of it. So kind of a kind of an interesting flower. With Where some, was that at? Some, on, on his right forearm. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The li- lines over the top is an interesting uh-huh. look. Yeah. Okay. So just about three months into his sentence on July 29th, 1906... He escapes. Three months into a sentence. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So he's, I mean, he's regarded as one of the most dangerous and well-known characters of the Northwest for all of his safe yeah. cracking and all the crimes he committed. And uh, that evening on July 28th, uh, 1906, he is in supper. He's in the dining hall, you know, complete silent system. He asks to be excused because he's not feeling well. He leaves the dining hall. They check all the inmates back into their cells uh-huh. that night, and uh-huh. he's accounted for. What? Several times. At every guard check, he is accounted for. Next morning, the uh, the captain, Captain Ackley, actually goes through to count everybody, and he realizes that that's not Alfred in the bed. That is a dummy that looks like Alfred oh, in the bed. Oh, my gosh. They're pulling like an Alcatraz sort exactly, of thing. Exactly, yeah. So the, he made a little dummy, and his cellmate was like, I don't know where he's been. I haven't seen him. He wasn't locked up here at all last night. Oh, my gosh. So, yes. Apparently, the middle of supper, he's, he feigns the sickness. Mm-hmm. He goes outside. He had already left that dummy in the bed when when before they left for right. supper. So that was in there. Yeah. He waited all night, hiding. And they think that he was hiding in the in the stone shed. And I printed out these these photos okay. for you. Uh, it's kind of in the location of where Four House uh, oh, now resides. Totally it's kind of almost it. where we yeah, are right yeah. now in the corner of the yard. That's where the inmates were, yeah, totally. were chiseling the stones into the what the bricks that they constructed the walls and the, everything else. Wow. In. He had made a a wooden board with all these little cleats attached to it. And <gasps> late at night, somehow, under guards, you know, he snuck up and out and over the walls. And made it out. So he took this board that had the cleats on it and uh-huh. just dug it, like would he, he slam it. He leaned it against the wall. Oh, I yeah, see. Yeah, and then used the cleats to climb. Yeah. Gosh, so cleats okay. kind of like little pegs so that you yeah, could, right, like a little ladder. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That and, is uh, fascinating. The four guards that continued to count him all night long were uh, asked to resign. That's including a turnkey. Not uh, surprising. Yes, that was their last day. You know, because at every count during the wake hours, you know, mm-hmm. like up until 9 o'clock, right. you would have to put your hand up right, to the, right, to the right, cell. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yes. And so his cellmate was putting both hands up. What? Yeah, and so these guards weren't looking close enough. And um, so the warden said, you know what? That's that's enough. Yeah, that's fair. You're done. That's fair. Uh, of course, federal authorities are now also interested. They helped the warden put a $100 reward for his capture. Okay. They sent out this thing that that kind of goes through his peculiarities, scars. This mm-hmm. this warrant uh, with a hundred dollar reward at the top uh, says claims to have been born in Iowa and raised in Illinois. Has smooth face, rather surly face. Inclines head slightly forward when he walks. Has an ambling walk. Crescent shaped scar on knee. Vertical scar on back of neck. Horizontal scar on back of right forearm. I mean, the Bertillon things are so incredibly descriptive. Right. They took every detail of these individuals. Mole on left rump, 
on right forearm has tattoo of cross with sort of floral decoration underneath and vertical lines over type. He was serving his second term at this institution for burglary, having been here from April 1899 to March 1900, under the name P.C. White, and is also known that he has served time at Walla Walla and Salem. If arrested, notify me by wire at my expense. Any information obtained, forward to me without delay. He's captured mm-hmm. April 26, 1907 for highway robbery. So about oh. a few months later in North Dakota, in Mandan, North Dakota. And he gives his name as John C. Page. He's sentenced to five years. And while he's awaiting trial, he escapes, but he's recaptured. And then oh. not long after, he's brought to the penitentiary. So he escapes from the jail in North Dakota. Okay. And then he's brought to the penitentiary. And then on September 25th, 1907, he escapes from that prison, wow. North Dakota. Get it together, North Dakota. Yes. They're just kidding. Idaho's just as bad. <laughs> yeah. December 1907, Warden Whitney receives a letter stating that a man who appears to be Alfred is serving a sentence in Minneapolis, Minnesota's state penitentiary. Apparently, he... Uh, held up this this man and wife had a revolver and the husband actually pounced on alfred immediately pinned him to the ground pulled his arms back and called for assistance and police arrived quickly after so i mean this guy was like yeah right dude gosh i hope i can i'll probably just be scared (laughs) anyway yeah right so he's serving time there the warden's like hey you know, there, there, there was this, this magazine called Detective in uh, Illinois at that point, and they basically it was just like mugshots of of criminals who were wanted or who were recently arrested, and it was also a, a place for missing persons. So they would post their little the photos, and okay. and so a lot of people were like, "Hey, this guy that's arrested in, in Minnesota, he sounds a lot like your Alfred." And so the warden's like, "Yeah, I better go check on it." So he sends the thing and asks for information and a mugshot back, and he gets it back, and he's like, "This is definitely our guy." Wow. And Minnesota's like, "You know what? This guy's crazy." So we <laughs> sent him to the insane <gasps> asylum, and the warden's oh, saying, no, "No, what did you do? This is a terrible thing. He's going to escape." Yep. And they're like, yep, yep, yep. "I don't think." We have the same guy because this guy was clearly having mental issues. He attempted to hang himself. It's called acting. Yes. And wouldn't you know it, as the warden is sending his guard to go collect on Alfred, Alfred escapes from the insane asylum. Oh, Minnesota. Yes. You done messed up, Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, Also, the husband finds out about the reward and he's like, you know, I'd love that thousand dollar reward you wrote oh, about and the warden's yes. like oh you know actually that was a hundred dollar reward and you know you're gonna have to speak to the authorities there to find okay. out who actually gets it and well he escapes so the husband loses out on that reward oh money. that sucks yes so they're looking for him and it's going back and forth finally he is picked up for vagrancy once again in grand island nebraska on march 11th 1908 Authorities there realize this is this Idaho escapee, this Minnesota escapee, this North Dakota escapee. We're going to contact the authorities in Idaho. And uh, no issues this time. He is brought back to the institution a couple days later, and he serves out his time. And in Idaho at this time, the the law for escape, you received another sentence after the one you served Mm -hmm. that was the equal amount. So... He got a 15-year sentence for the robbery, Uh and then he would have to serve another 15 years for escape. Wow. The warden, Whitney, he's like, 
this is unjust. Like even he was like, this is a little harsh. Right. You know, sometimes these individuals will commit an equal crime, but you know, the judge gives them a different sentence based on circumstances. Right. So, you know, that that's just not right. Alfred actually fights this law and makes it so that it's actually illegal. Mm. Uh, they deem it unconstitutional, and uh, you know the it conflicts with the Fourteenth Amendment. Right. You know all of this. So basically, he spends the next few years, you know, without any issue. Uh, in 1911, he's his health starts to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got some disease that they're worried that it's uh, communicable and it'll oh, spread throughout yeah. the prison. So. Yeah. He actually applies for a parole. Okay. This is just a few, like he served maybe three years oh, after wow. all of his after escape time and everything, and everything else. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, people are up in arms. They're like, there's no way you could release this guy. And you're going to, you know, you're worried about him getting those prisoners right. sick. He's going to get the us. The rest sick. of us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the parole board is like, you know, he, we really don't see him living much longer than a year. Oh, wow. So they release him August 7th, 1911. Very short amount okay. of time. And the uh, pardon board, I mean, they got a ton of flack. This is from the Camas Prairie Chronicle, September 22nd, 1911. Idaho pardon board in limelight again. The Idaho Board of Pardons confirms the justice of Judge Steele's indictment of it. He charged it with the moral responsibility of the lynching of Peter Malik. It retorts by pardoning a convict. According to the statements of the correspondent, the pardon appears to have been unpardonable. The convict seems to be a professional criminal. The board is said to have alleged that he is the professor of a disease which would have been communicated to the inmates of the prison. He was therefore turned loose to the prey on the community and spread the disease among the people. Oh boy. Fine logic that it asserts that it is preferable that the innocent many instead of the guilty few should suffer. It is eminently adapted to increase the respect of the public for law and the state's appointed guardians of society. The board's action is calculated to encourage judges and juries in the performance of their duty. It's like... I really love early newspaper articles because oh they gosh. pull no bunches. They, like, yeah, they yeah. will just passive aggressively <laughs> just attack you as much as they can. Yes. And sometimes it's very funny. Fine yeah. logic that. <laughs> it's very good. I am not very good at reading <laughs> out loud. Okay. So I apologize for all that. <laughs> not long after, reporters are sent to find out now what is he doing? What crimes is he committing? Oh March 1912. They track him down. He's living in Hillside, Oregon. His father has just passed away. Mm -hmm. His mother seems to be on her deathbed. He's also suffering, but he has recently had a surgery to help with his illness, and he seems to be okay. He's actually been working. He is a foreman of a road construction crew, and he has stayed out of trouble. Wow. So okay. he kind of, he got, he stayed out. Uh, sometime around 1919, 1920, he's found lying on a lawn in South Portland, shot through the back. Oh. Physicians said there's no chance for him to survive. Detectives start to, you know, they investigate. They try to ask him, you know, who did this? This detective, his name is Tom Coleman, has like huge mad respect for Alfred. When he asked him, you know, who did this to you, Alfred? Alfred responded, Tom. You've known me a good many years, and you know I've never snitched on a man yet. Oh, boy. Yeah. Wow. He survives this gunshot. Oh. So he survives this thing. It's crazy. For another two years, two, oh, three years, finally, March 9th, 1922, at the age of 54, 
he dies in Portland, Oregon, and he's buried at the Jones Pioneer Cemetery. And the obituary is actually pretty much written by police officers that oh. arrested him throughout the years. And they, they title it, Square Gag is Dead. Fred Love, 54, dies at St. Vincent's Hospital. Outlaw never told lie and never squealed on pal, says Portland detectives. Um, so it's like this is weirdly heartwarming obituary. Uh-huh. About this man who's well, but whole it's in such was... prison terms. Like, yeah, he's an outlaw, and he never told a lie, but he also never squealed on anyone. <laughs> yeah. Like, that is such a, a prison way of of looking at this man's yeah. life. Yeah, I mean, he's the epitome of like the convict code. Mm-hmm. Like, totally. Do your own dime, do your own number. Yep. You don't you see something, you don't say anything. Yeah. yeah. The detective continued. He said he's one of the squarest ever known in the so-called safe-blowing profession. And square is in like he's on the level, not square as in like loser. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that, I mean, that is the life and times of dangerous, <sighs> safe-cracking, <laughs> alias-ridden, Was it A.E. Love? A.E. Love. Wow. Portland White, yeah. Portland Whitey. That's such a good name. That's such a good name. Yeah. Well, I love it, Anthony. Nice work. Oh, my God. And there is so much more. If I talked about his crimes in Salem, watch it. If I track it. Right, 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 right. No, I understand. This would be a long episode. Yeah. (laughs) If you like the podcast, please consider making a donation. You can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov slash donation. Any donation is appreciated and it will go toward improving the quality of this podcast and enabling us to continue to bring you the stories that we love and we hope that you love too. Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. There you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group. I am talking about number 6036, Mary Holmes. I have been so excited to do her since I like re-researched her and rewrote this because it's amazing. And so she is easily the most difficult inmate that I've had to research. And I've researched 146 now. There's maybe one exception. And I'd say that's Fedora Crawford, who I'd like to do soon because fascinating. Love her. All we really have about Mary Holmes is her arrest record, which is extensive. And I'll get into that in just a second. I dug and dug and dug on every every resource I had. And unlike A.E. Love, there is no certainty as to what her real name is. Like none at all. Like I I don't even know if any of the names she uses were her actual names. Wow. that's it's wild just i just remember being like i saw her fbi record and i just was like i don't even know where to begin yeah yeah. so mary holmes comes into the prison in 1939 she says she was born in massachusetts we have to take her at a word for that one i really don't know and that it's it's it is the most frustrating thing i put her on the map in the faces exhibit Uh for massachusetts and i remember just going like because just through my research, yep. I was like, there's, there's this, nothing. There, nothing. She is an unknown person. Mm-hmm. She is a ghost of a human yes, being. Yes, she I really no is. Idea. So when she came into the prison, she said she was 46. So she would have been born, oh no, I have to do math, roughly 1893-ish, I think. Again, assuming that her age is correct. And, you know, we don't know. Yeah. We have to take her to word for all this. So she is uh, 5'6", 136. She's decent 
average size for a woman these days, mm-hmm. but 1939, she's probably a little tall. All right. So sources, um, her inmate file, as usual, she actually had quite a few Daily Statesman articles written about her. One singular Library of Congress article that I could find. Wow. And I actually will quote the entire thing. Cool. And then Ancestry.com only because I searched and searched and searched. There's, again, one record I could find of oh her on Ancestry. So let's start. September 11th, 1939. Mary Holmes and an accomplice, May Freeman, who are both from Kansas City, Missouri, are arrested and charged with grand larceny after stealing a Japanese fur coat worth about $350 from the C.C. Anderson store in Boise which I did my research, is still there. It's on 10th and Idaho downtown, and it now houses the Athlos Academies, which is a nationwide yeah. charter school. So yeah. that is the C.C. Anderson store where she Macy's stole. Building too, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, because it, it turned, okay. Anderson turned into Macy's, which Bon Marche or whatever, yeah, and then, yeah. so it's all whatever that That's used to be crazy. that building. Now, upon their arrest, they both plead not guilty. Mary is held on a $1,500 bail, and May is only held on about 500 I think Mary has the bigger reputation of yeah. these two ladies. So the Boise police chief, his name is Austin Utley, Utley, I don't know, U-T-L-E-Y. He says, quote, the women are known to be associated with one of the biggest fur theft rings in the United States. Wow. And he's, he talks about their extensive FBI records, and I, I don't want to give things away. This is according to the prosecuting attorney. He says that there's a national publication called the National Furrier, which proclaims itself the National Fur Trade Magazine. (laughs) And they name Mary by name as someone who's involved in this ring of fur thieves. And so this is like well known that this is what she's doing. I wonder, would they have her photo on the wall? They have to keep an eye out for this individual. Given the fact that she uses so many different names, the only way has to be her picture or the fact that she keeps stealing Mm -hmm. furs. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I cannot... Again, you'll when when I get into it, you're gonna be like, I don't I don't understand how they kept track of her at all. Yeah. So May ends up paying her five hundred dollar bail. She apparently has enough money. She pays it, she's released. She flees the state. She actually runs to Texas. Um she leaves Mary to her own devices. May is later arrested in Texas. Do you wanna guess why she's arrested? Stealing fur coats? Exactly. Oh yes. She steals gosh. another fur coat. And um, so the state of Idaho is like, whatever, Texas keeper, yeah. we've got our own business. <laughs> so she ends up staying in Texas. I'm sure she's prosecuted on something. So after May jumps bail, I think Mary kind of realizes she doesn't really have enough chance on her own to plead yeah. not guilty. She probably could if there was someone else with her. But now that she's gone, she's on her own. So she ends up withdrawing her not guilty plea, ends up pleading guilty. So she's sentenced to two to 14 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary for grand larceny. So this is where it gets fun. So the FBI forwards Mary's record based on her fingerprints, which I think about this. This is 1939. So you have to get the person's fingerprints, send it to the FBI, and then they have to, do they have to like physically like eyeball match? They catalog them. Yeah, yeah. Like so, so you have to go through and just see if these any of these match. Yeah, and, and they it, you kind of break them down so that there's oh like there's swirls and then right. there are like humps and grooves and there's so they have them kind of categorized and then you have to keep cutting down can you each imagine category until, having oh to do that gosh, 
that would be a job for someone who's I would be a job that I would hate. So detail oriented. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think I would like it. Just like the <laughs> you know, I love the search. Like you, the do, you do, you do. So. I would hate it. I would be like I'd look at like two and be like, I'm done, I can't. Yeah. I think there would be I'm a out. point where your eyes would just start to cross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, there would be a lot of naps on that job yeah. is all I'm saying. So anyway, this is the record that the Idaho State Penitentiary gets so settle in, as Betty Davis says in All About Eve. Buckle up, it's gonna be a bumpy night. Oh no. Okay. So here's here's her record. Starting June nineteen eleven, she's arrested in New York City for shoplifting. She would have been about eighteen years old mm-hmm. if her her age in nineteen thirty nine is correct. Nineteen twelve, Providence, Rhode Island, shoplifting. Nineteen thirteen, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, shoplifting. New Haven, Connecticut, defrauding a housekeeper. Don't know what that means. Hmm. Again in New York City for soliciting. 1916, Richmond County, New York, attempted burglary. 1921, New York City, grand larceny. Detroit, Michigan, she actually is called as a state witness as a robbery accomplice. 1922, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, shoplifting. Now, this is the only newspaper article I found using one of her aliases, which I will get into her aliases in just a minute. So this is found through the Library of Congress um, newspaper project in the Evening Public Ledger from Philadelphia, January 20th, 1922. It says, two women are held in thefts of dresses, fashionably attired pair balk at ride in patrol. So it says, two young women, pretty and fashionably dressed, were arraigned before Magistrate Rooney in the 15th, blah, 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 charged with shoplifting. Although the police have so far only one specific charge against them, it is believed that the girls are responsible for most of the big thefts in the fashionable specialty shops, which have been suffering heavily lately from shoplifters. The women were arrested Saturday for stealing two dresses, one valued at $110 and the other at $85 from a specialty shop on Chestnut Street. They gave their names as Pearl Davis, 35, and Clara Chester, 30. The addresses they gave were so obviously false that their names are suspected of being aliases. So that's that's the newspaper, and that's in 1922. So 1925, again, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for shoplifting. 1927, Mason City, Iowa for theft. 1928, Omaha, Nebraska for grand larceny. Same year, Kansas City, Missouri, shoplifting. 1934, St. Paul, Minnesota for shoplifting. 1935, Stevens Point, Wisconsin for grand larceny. 1936, Columbus, Ohio for petite larceny. St. Louis, Missouri for shoplifting. 1937, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, vagrancy and investigation for shoplifting. And finally, 1939, West Beach, Florida for vagrancy and Boise, Idaho for grand larceny. Wow. Wild. Wow. I'm glad I buckled up for that. Yeah. Was... It's a lot. Wow. Now, I as I said, I, it's, it's just shoplifting wow. everywhere. Like, everywhere. How, how does one person do all of that? I don't know. That is so wild. Um, so, Ooh. she, as I said, she's not just arrested under the name Mary Holmes. That'd be easy. We yeah. could figure out Mary Holmes if she was just arrested right. all these yeah. times. <laughs> so, these are the different alias she uses. Pearl Jordan. Pearl Davis. Mary Bishop, Mary Kelly, Edna Wolf, Margaret Baker, Mary Kane, Edna Ryan, and Edna Black. Here's the craziest thing about all of this in all these states with all these names. She is never once sent to a penitentiary except in Boise. Wow. Not once. She is just fined or kept in city or county jails. That's it. I don't know if you would know this, uh-huh. but were any of the conditions where it's like you have to leave this town? There was one. Okay. And I think I may have written it down, but I can't remember which one it was. But I'm pretty uh-huh. sure there's one. It may have been Missouri uh-huh. that they were like, get out of here. Yeah. Just leave. We oh, don't care. Yeah. 
So in Wisconsin, she actually just fails to appear in court. But since she has aliases and she's everywhere, they can't they can't find her and arrest her and bring her back for it. So she probably at that point would have gone into a penitentiary, but she's not found basically until she ends up here. So there is only one thing I can could conclusively find about Mary's personal life, and it was her marriage. One marriage. So because of her transience, basically at all times, she's obviously never in any census. She's never going to put her name down on paper. Even if she did, we don't know what it is. No idea. So she's very difficult to capture. She is found once in the 1930 census, married to a man named Otto Miller, living in Minnesota. Luckily, we know this because he wrote and he had many of his acquaintances write in during her incarceration. Yeah. So we know this is actually her. She yeah, is yeah. under listed under Mary Holmes. Mary, Mary Miller, I think. So remember, there's a large gap between 1928 and 1934, and her next arrest is in St. Paul, Minnesota. So then if she's captured in the 1930 census in Minnesota, this makes a lot of sense. Right. So I'm like 90% certain that that is her. So yeah. she's married. Uh, living in Minnesota. During her incarceration, Otto, as I said, had several people from the Minnesota community write letters to the warden vouching both for her character, but mostly for his character, which is interesting, all in the hopes that she would be released early. So I think they're asking for consideration for Otto more than for Mary because Mm -hmm. they're basically like, he needs his wife back home with him. It'd be cruel not to allow her to return to Minnesota. He's such a good guy. He deserves this happiness. From what I can tell, they were separated, though. So I don't know if he is trying to get her back. I mean, maybe she left in 1934. She left him, and he wants her back. I don't know. I could not... Again, there's so little I know about her that it's so frustrating. So I think it's probable that she probably married more than once. Mm But there's just nothing, there's nothing to find because, I mean, the other thing is these names that she uses, Pearl Jordan, Pearl Davis, Mary Bishop, Mm -hmm. how many people across the United States had that name? Like, these are not unique names that she's, she's smart. She's, you know, she's using names that... Very common. Very common names. Edna Black, uh, Margaret Baker, are you kidding me? I know, when you were naming some of these, I was like, didn't we have a female MA named like Edna... Probably, you know, you know, it's (laughs) so she's she's very smart. She's using these names that Mm -hmm. and she can change them so quickly and she can use them interchangeably. And she does. And oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I think I spent a full day just combing through Ancestry uh, records, just using each one of these names and like coming up on one that I'm like, this has to be her. And then like finding one little piece that you're like, that's not her. Oh, it was the most frustrating thing I think I've ever done. And it's eventually I just had to start writing with what I had. (laughs) So on August 17th, 1940, so she went in in October 1939. Mm -hmm. So this has been uh, almost a year. Mm -hmm. Um, She this is the letter that she writes to the Board of Pardons. She says, when your honorable body meets in October, I will have served approximately one year of my two to 14 year sentence. Since my entrance into this institution, I've become reconciled with my husband and intend returning to him in the East immediately after my release. This is my first incarceration in a penitentiary, and my record here has been as good as will be attested to by the records. Hoping you will see fit to grant my case your favorable consideration. And this is the this was the first time that I realized that she did not serve jail time yeah. or like prison time. Yeah. When she says, like, this is the first time that I've been in, in a prison, and I was like, yeah, right. And then I went back and I was like... What, what do you mean? She never served in it. Like, I I just, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's so wild. So the parole board agrees. Um, She is conditionally pardoned on October 5th, 1940. 
I couldn't find what the conditions of those were. Most yeah. of the time it's that she usually has to write once a month for a year. Yeah. That's usually the condition. Work, stay out of mm-hmm. trouble. Don't, no drugs, yeah, you can't get into alcohol. alcohol yeah. And, yeah. So she's then fully pardoned in July 1941. Does she return to Minnesota to be with her husband? We don't know. We don't, don't know. know. No idea. Oh my gosh. Not a clue. Wow. So we do have a little bit of information though. Do you want to guess? I'm assuming you know that she's arrested again. Do you want to guess what? where? And for what? Where? California? She is first arrested next, January 1942 in Fort Worth, Texas. Texas? Yes. Oh. Uh, under investigation, probably for shoplifting. Yeah. She's got a new alias, Alice Carter. And then in June 1942, Hartford, Connecticut, theft against a person, alias Pearl Martin. August 1943, Baltimore, Maryland, investigation and release. Oh, here it is. She must leave the state immediately. Oh alias Mary Ellen Tracy. May 1945, Wilmington, Delaware, petite larceny, alias Mary Ellen Trace. <laughs> she can't stop. It's wild. And these the states that you, like, in Idaho records we don't get very often, Connecticut, Delaware, <laughs> We hardly get anyone from Delaware or even existing in Delaware. Right. So if you lost count of everything, Mary Holmes, as far as we know, I'm sure there's stuff after that they were like, the prison was like, stop sending us stuff. It's too much. The time that we have, she commits crimes in 15 different states and is arrested under 13 different aliases. And the only prison time she ever spent that we know of was here in Boise. And so finding Mary Holmes' story was just, impossible just like her true story is absolutely impossible no idea what her given name was but i would do anything to know her early life i mean a lot of times women have to resort to stealing at a young age because they're orphaned or because they Mm -hmm. grew up really poor uh maybe because they run away from a husband maybe because their husband doesn't have any money no idea no idea i wonder if there are any records of uh massachusetts like orphanages that you could investigate Uh, yeah the hardest part with massachusetts records is they go so far back that it's so hard to find anything yeah yeah and so she really was just in a perfect situation to never be found i love her like i kind of have mad respect for her because she just she i don't know if she was charming enough like how did she not get penitentiary time right and I don't know if maybe it's because it's a lot of shoplifting. Like most people don't go into to penitentiaries for shoplifting, but yeah. but you do Somewhat have the people petty. who are like released on a certain condition. If they break those conditions, they have to go mm. to the penitentiary. We have so many inmates who that happens to, and so wild. Wow, wild. Wow. I, it's crazy. That so is that is crazy. that is our six zero three six Mary Holmes, aka. Every name you can yeah, every think of. name yeah. Edna Pearl <laughs> Mary Wow Margaret. And those are just the ones that she got caught yeah, yeah and and those are just the wow. ones that happened up till forty five oh like I couldn't gosh. find again like how who am I supposed to search for her death or mm-hmm. anything there's yeah. just nothing wow so that that is Mary Holmes aka the most frustrating inmate that yeah. I have ever researched Sky great work Thank oh you. my Thank gosh <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy that's a great one. Yeah, wild. Well, lover. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah, oh, I think this this is a match made in heaven yes, here with yes. all their aliases. We love it, and that was and, by accident. Uh, we didn't really plan that. No, no. I just wanted to talk about it, a fun escape story, mm-hmm. and geez, sure enough. Well, all right, Skybug. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel that like felt we can't weird. we can't leave <laughs> under weird. our real names. <laughs> I know. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Uh, All right, Grandpa Tony P. Yes, we are signing off. Uh, Do your own 
time. To your own number. See you next week. 